It's Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. At the beginning of this summer, I had several trips planned to support my friend Aaron Ramirez at Ironman races. It looked to be a fun summer and fall, back to our usual activities of traveling and racing. Of course, you know what happened next. Alaska was hit hard by the Delta variant, and everything changed once again. Even though Aaron was vaccinated, he developed a breakthrough COVID infection. Training was impossible and races were quickly canceled. The long journey he is on to be able to train as before and feel comfortable racing inspired me to put together this show. You'll hear from Dr. Kim Harmon, the team physician for the University of Washington football team who has been researching the impacts of COVID on athletes, and Elisa Carroll, a physical therapist who helps people recover lung function after a COVID infection. But first, you'll hear about Aaron's COVID experience and what he has learned while returning to his active life. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. Uh, so, hey, Aaron, you inspired this show. Um, and so I'm starting it with you. And you inspired it because you've really had a struggle with COVID. And uh, you're one of the the most amazing Ironman athletes I know and the amount of training you do and your dedication to the sport. Um, so thanks for being here. And, um, you know, I want, uh, you just to kind of start where you were in July when you first got sick. Okay. Um, so let, let me say that for the race season, I had six races planned and I ended up only doing one and I have another one coming up in December. So, um, and that is because around mid-July, I uh, got sick and with all the COVID stuff around, I went and got a COVID test like is recommended and it came back negative. So I thought, well, that's good, but I was feeling like crap. So stayed home from work, worked from home, um, didn't train that week and started feeling better. And then um, went back to work and started training again. And I, I remember that you talked to me during that week when you had had the test and, and, and I was really, I knew it was hard for you not to train and everything, but I think if I remember you really felt that week, you were like, I had a negative test, but I feel like I probably have COVID. I did. Um, well, I still had my taste and, and smell. So that was still going on pretty good, but I had, um, just these monster headaches, uh, body aches. Um, I was sleeping 10 hours a night. Um, and it, I just felt miserable, no energy to do anything, but I knew I had all these races coming up. So, <laughs> you know, like the dedicated athlete that I am, I wanted to start feeling better. And so powered down a bunch of liquids, um, wasn't really that hungry. So my nutrition suffered a little bit, but I kept the fluids going in that whole week. Mm -hmm. So then you started training again. And how did that first, before, before you got sick again, how did that, that first little bit of training, how did you feel during that time? Um, so I came, I went back into training and it was okay. I mean, 
because I had such a strong base, the workout after I was sick was a slow recovery. So it was, um, the training wasn't as hard. It was building up to getting back into um, my regular training routine. And so all that week, it was not really recovery week, but it was not that uh, challenging and, and not that much of a struggle mm-hmm. until um, I went on a, I think it was a five or five and a half hour bike ride on that Saturday. Um, so and that this, been, this is like in August now. We're in the beginning of August, right? Right. If I have my dates correct, that would have been, I want to say August 8th. Mm-hmm. August 8th, I think that's on a Sunday or on a Saturday. Um, yeah, so I had um, a long bike ride and it was okay. I, I you know, I, it was 70 something miles um, and I had plenty of nutrition on board, lots of liquid. And I came back from the bike ride and I was just exhausted. Mm-hmm. I was completely lack of energy, just a massive headache. And I just basically went to bed, didn't eat anything, which wasn't a good thing to do. Right. (laughs) You broke the number one rule. (laughs) Right. Didn't eat anything, um, went to sleep, woke up um, the Sunday afternoon. So I'd slept, you know, well over 12, 14 hours. Felt like crap. Um, went and got a COVID test it was the first thing I did after I tried to eat something. And then, um, it came back Monday. Yeah. So it came back Monday, the 9th of August and I tested positive. Well, I think it's pretty amazing that you did a 70 mile ride when you were brewing COVID in your body. I mean, and that must've been like your body's like, like the last straw. It's like, oh, we're not going to do anymore now. It's done. You're going to be in bed for a while now. Right. And I was, I was in bed. Um, so on Tuesday of that week, I felt okay. So I worked from home and then, um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it was just in, in that weekend, I slept probably 20 hours a day. Mm-hmm. I was just wiped out. And, and I think you called me right after that time when you, that long weekend and you, that's when you told me you had tested positive for COVID because you, you were preparing first for main 70.3, which is a half Ironman. And a bunch of us were going to go do this race. And at that point, I think it was mid August, you were still hoping that you were going to be able to do the race. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and in my head i'm like nah he's not doing this race <laughs> right and so it was so bad i was tested getting tested once a week to see if i could go do the race i remember that <laughs> Re- regardless of how i felt if i tested negative i still was considering doing the race mm-hmm. but you made the choice not to do the race and not even right. to travel out there. We didn't, we canceled the whole trip and our traveling partners had to cancel for other reasons. And yeah. Right. So we deferred to next year, mm-hmm. the, the main 70.3. But a lot of that too, wasn't that also just because 
you were so exhausted. You can imagine travel, even getting on an airplane and traveling all the way out to Maine. And you were because, because now we're already at the end of August and you're still having a lot of effects of COVID on your body. Well, and, and that's a good point because I, um, sort of manage, or I would say my energy level at that point was maybe 50 to 60%. And I gauged that on my fitness for going into Honu, which was at the beginning of June, mm-hmm. because it was still, you know, the same distance race. And I had a good base going into Honu and I, I was ready for that race. And, and it was a, a decent race for me. I didn't do as well as I wanted to I still got on the podium, but it, but it was still a good race. Mm-hmm. So you're right. Um, I was about 50 or 60% energy level at that point in time. And that's really the decision um, point of not going to the race. Right. Because I couldn't do my best. Yeah. And it would have just, just the travel itself would have taken a lot out of you and then set you back again for training going forward. Right. And so then now we're at the, like the beginning of September right now, today is the middle of November. It's November 10th. Um, so we're looking back at the beginning of September and at this point, now you've canceled another race, which is Barcelona Ironman, which was supposed to be at the beginning of October, because that was becoming clear that an Ironman wasn't going to happen in four weeks because you lost this big chunk of training and you were still exhausted. And so during September, you were starting to get back in just work on getting back into your routine, your activity, not long rides, not long runs or long swims and everything very low level aerobic. Right. Right. So it it was really, I was just trying to um, really focus on maintaining my technique, especially on the swimming. Um, And then uh, just making sure that I was able to move my legs, Mm -hmm. nothing real hard on the bike or the run. Um, still maintain some pretty good sets on the swim, but just really trying to maintain. That's all I was trying to do and, and hopefully recover. And um, how did it feel? How did your body feel? What were the effects you were having during September and October and even now to some degree, right? Right. So, and, and you forgot one race that I had to defer. I um, deferred Oregon as well. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And that was like an, an inaugural race. Um, that's the first time the um, Oregon 70.3 was going to happen. But mm-hmm. I would say that um, in retrospect, looking back at what I shouldn't have done. <laughs> <laughs> that's always a good lesson for everybody. <laughs> was I, I shouldn't have tried to recover so quickly. Um, when I was sick, the first week, even being tested negative, I should have held back and and not tried to continue the long rides, the long runs, you know, the endurance training in preparation for, you know, the next race or any races that were out there in the future. And in hindsight, I should have had a longer recovery period. That's what mm-hmm. the bottom line is. And And I know a few other friends and coworkers and some family that if there's one piece of advice that I can offer because of my experience and conversations with all those folks is, you know, if you think you're recovered, 
take the same amount of time to recover again because it can creep back up on you. Mm-hmm. And the second time is a lot worse than the first. And and I hope that nobody else has to go through that. And the and the lessons that I learned, they can you know use those going forward because it, it, the second time around it's far worse than the first. So now you're about three months past your initial positive test, and um, how are you feeling? Like how is your breathing and does your heart rate, uh, is it, is it normal? Like it, or does it jump up at times? Are you having headaches anymore? So, um, generally I feel okay. Um, my energy level I'd say is, is about 90%. I have to use an inhaler now, which I didn't have to, you know, prior to going into Honu. And so I carry that around with me. And, and if I get short of breath, Um, I use my inhaler and that's primarily because I monitor my um, pulse ox level or concentration pretty closely because I don't want it to drop below the sort of 92 threshold, 92%. And if I do, then, then I basically lay off on the training Hmm. because from what I've read and what my doctors told me is if you have, um, a low pulse ox for an extended period of time, it starts doing damage to your vital organs. And, and that's really not a good thing. And, and I'm not a doctor. I'm just letting you know how I know things. Right. So, um, the race you are planning now and looks like it's going to happen is beginning of December. It's a half Ironman. Um, and how do you feel about that? Do you think you're going to be at your normal capacity for racing or is it just a race to, you know, get everything moving again? Um, well, I, I don't think it's going to be a normal capacity race because honestly, I'm going to be a little bit tentative about how I approach it. Right. First of all, the water is going to be extremely cold, which I'm kind of used to, but, um, for some reason, I get more lung constriction in colder weather. And, and I don't know why that is, or if that everybody experiences that I just know that that's how my body reacts to it. So I'm hoping um, to get a few days of time in the water there. And then I'll be able to see if you know, how well I think I can do or, or if I think the, um, the race is going to be sort of a, a normal you know, go for the gusto type of race. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to feel good to get back at it one way or another, right? It will. I, I like the competition. I mean, I enjoy competing with other athletes my age. And, and for me, it, it's just a big giant mental game because all of the hard work is done. Yeah. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for sharing this. I think it's really important that people hear firsthand what's happening with athletes and And, um, my two other guests both emphasized, you know, the importance of listening to your body, which I think is basically what you said too. listen to your body and then don't ignore it. Right. (laughs) Right. And, and we both know that I'm not in a real good habit of doing that. (laughs) That is a struggle for you to do that. Yes. It's good practice. (laughs) So thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lisa. Appreciate the conversation. This is Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller.
If you are just joining us, you're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Kim Harmon, the team physician for the University of Washington football team. Dr. Harmon, along with her colleagues, has been studying the effect of COVID on athletes and how to safely return to activity after a COVID infection. Thanks for being here today, Kim. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I was really excited to hear about you because my friend, Tricia Schmitz, who is a nurse practitioner at the UAA Student Health and Counseling Center, said that she had sat in on um, a conference that you were talking at, um, and I'm not really sure of those details, but that you had developed like a returning to activity after a COVID diagnosis for the athletes in the Pac-10. Yeah, so it's it's been really sort of a journey as as we have have done this, and it's not just for the Pac-12, but also for you know thinking of high school athletes and adult recreational athletes, and 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 a lot of different situations. But first, it, it was really motivated by trying to figure out how to get our college athletes back on the field safely after COVID, and um, and and certainly it wasn't uh, just me who developed this, but a lot of lot of input from infectious disease and sports cardiologists and and then just different stakeholders about like well that's that's a great uh, thing to do but we can't do that here because we don't have cardiac MRIs and things like that so definitely a, a big group effort mm-hmm. the, well uh, and is the cardiac piece of it like the most worrisome when it comes to like your college athletes like the effects of covid? Yeah, you know, um, certainly that that was our primary concern because if you have a cardiac issue after something that can be potentially fatal. And what we saw at the very beginning of the pandemic was that in hospitalized patients, COVID-19 really seemed to have a predilection or, or really seemed to like cardiac tissue more than you saw in other viruses. And so in hospitalized uh, patients from influenza, for example, about 1% of them will have some cardiac effects. And in the early days of COVID, we were seeing about 22% of hospitalized COVID patients with um, uh, cardiac issues. And so uh, as we're trying to get these athletes back on the field and exercising again, we were really worried about that that potential um, problem. You know, um, sudden cardiac death is the leading sort of medical killer of um, exercising athletes. And we know just from looking at studies in the past that myocarditis or inflammation of of the heart, which can occur from a number of different things, um, was already um, an important sort of chunk of of those things that cause sudden cardiac death in athletes. And so sort of alarm bells were raised initially. Mm -hmm. Are, are there other parts of the body besides the heart that um, a COVID infection is is impacting? Like, obviously, well, the, the lungs and the heart work together, obviously. So, and I know there's a lot of lung issues as well, but are there, um, are you seeing any lasting effects with athletes, you know, going up the chain up to the brain and down into the bowel? I know that those are two other concerns. You know, the really interesting thing um, in our college athletes who are exercising every day and, and it, you know, generally really fit is that we aren't seeing many of these sort of long COVID sort of symptoms. And, um, you know, uh, so exercise seems to be protective. And so even in our athletes, if you look at underlying risk factors for long COVID in the general population, things like obesity or a big BMI, we've certainly got a lot of 
big athletes, say in football or in track and things like that, we aren't seeing a lot of um, effects with long COVID, maybe somewhere around 1% of athletes, which is much, much different than in the general population. So um, people should get out there and exercise for a number of reasons, but one of the one of the reasons might be to avoid the effects of long COVID. So are you seeing any athletes outside of the college population or, yeah, and what does that look like? Because um, kind of one of my other jobs is as a triathlon coach. And I'm now dealing with a lot of people who have had COVID and some even breakthrough vaccine uh, COVID infections where people are getting pretty seriously ill and are still suffering some effects of it now. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, I think most of when people have coming, have problems coming back to exercise after COVID, it appears to be mostly lung related um, and just sort of problems getting back their endurance and their, and their, and their fitness and just feeling sort of short of breath as they come back. And so um, I work with sort of high school athletes and then also work with older adult athletes in my regular practice. The problem is with, with these groups is that we just don't have sort of the rich data set to sort of say, uh, you know, 10% or, or, or 20%. And, you know, people can't even really agree on what long COVID is. Um, so, so it's, it's hard to quote sort of stats. Definitely people do have problems coming back, but I don't know. And I don't have a great sense of what percent of those athletes, uh, are having issues coming back. Um, certainly my sense from working with a large group of high school athletes is that, um, certainly, uh, age and exercise seem to be productive, both from that, um, perspective. But as we get into older age groups of athletes, um, I think it's, it's more of an unknown. Mm, interesting. Um, so what, let, let's kind of like go backwards a little bit and, um, just talk a little bit about what happens to the body during a COVID infection and, and the, and what parts of the body are affected just like the normal everyday person and, um, and, uh, what that can look like between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Yeah. You know, I mean, so COVID, the interesting thing about it, it can affect any part of your body. And it, it seems to, you know, from, from the top of your head down to the muscle aches and um, to the uh, loss of uh, taste and smell and, and things like that. And, you know, how it comes out and how it in different people is, is, is um, well, it's different. Um, and so, and the severity of infection also seems to be really, um, really different. Um, I think that there's some maybe trends that we can explore. Definitely in our vaccinated um, individuals, we tend to see less severe uh, symptoms with COVID. Um, and um, so vaccination can sort of maybe um, confer some uh, good effects that um, youth can also do. And so um, you know, somebody who is 65 and vaccinated has sort of a similar risk of being hospitalized to somebody who is 20 and unvaccinated. And so, so really, uh, particularly for older people, um, vaccination is, is really important just for surviving COVID and, and, and coming out on the other end of it fine, even if you do get it. And of course, you're much less likely to get it. Um, you know, for our younger population, it can also decrease the severity of COVID but also becomes more important in terms of not, um, you know, killing our parents and grandparents and, um, and uh, allowing the virus to continue on and replicate and become something um, that, that none of us 
then, you know, it's even worse when, than what we're facing now. So, you know, a number of different reasons to, to think about vaccination, but it definitely makes COVID less severe when you do get it most of the time. What well, not that, you know, because Alaska has been going through this unprecedented surge of COVID in Delta right now. And um, one of the things, one of the takeaways I had from the articles I've been reading is that they're seeing a lot younger people who are unvaccinated in the hospital. And, um, and then also kind of, kind of a morbid thing about that is that they hang on longer because they're younger and they take up bed space for a really long period of time. And then maybe a bed becomes available because they, they die after four weeks instead of like the two weeks it was taking older people early on in the pandemic before we had vaccinations. Um, so that seems like this other kind of interplay in the whole epidemic. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, we're seeing more younger people with COVID in the hospital because there's a bigger chunk of younger people that are unvaccinated. Uh, you know, everybody's bulletproof when they're 20 until they're not. Yep. <laughs> um, and so, um, just because there is a bigger pool, even though it's still a small percentage, it, it, it it does end up sort of filling up hospitals and, and you're right. Um, um, sometimes hanging on a little bit, a bit longer before, before the ultimate sort of um, bad outcome, if that mm -hmm. happens. And so, um, you know, the hospital space, particularly in places that are already a little bit assured that that's, it's, it's a real issue. Mm -hmm. And it uh, also means that, that if you get in a car wreck or have some other sort of um, issue that, that, there's not space for you. And, and we can see that in, uh, turn up as excess mortality in other ways as well. So in terms of being like outside in Alaska or Washington, where you are, and we have high populations of hunters and it's fall, it's hunting season. Those are now becoming more dangerous things to do for our community because like, what if resources have to be taken because you're injured in, you know, in a hunting accident and you get to the hospital and there's not a bed for you in the hospital, right? I mean, that's there, going to there, have the impact on yeah, everybody. And, 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 and we're seeing that in areas where they're um, having surges and resource shortages. Certainly, um, we're, we're, we're beginning to ration care, which is something that, yeah. in general, we as Americans have not had to deal with. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. We are going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear more from Dr. Harmon. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My conversation with Dr. Harmon continues. Uh, Dr. Ann Zink, uh, our chief medical officer of state, just I think it was an opinion piece for the New York Times or the Washington Post and wrote about what was happening up here. And um, the one of her great lines in that piece was that people tend to overestimate the vaccine risk and underestimate the COVID risk when it comes to balancing whether they should get vaccinated or not. Um, and and uh, there, there, there are a few um, risks with the vaccine, especially it seems with young people. Um, so, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Just, I mean, it's obviously way worse to get COVID than actually get the vaccine, but this just popped up on NPR yesterday and it's been circulating for a while about the risk specifically with young men 
with an mRNA-based uh, vaccine, so Pfizer, Moderna, and the risk of myocarditis, which is also a huge risk in COVID. Yeah, uh, and and so again, we get we have a lot of good data on this from our, our sort of uh, young people in our athlete group and and uh, things like that. So the risk for a 16 to 17 year old male um, from an an mRNA vaccine of getting myocarditis is somewhere in the neighborhood of about one in 20,000. And so that's not a zero risk, um, but you know, uh, you're, you might be uh, more at risk for having issues doing some other things. And that's just the risk of myocarditis or inflammation of the heart. The cases that we are seeing of myocarditis that are vaccine induced tend to be pretty mild. Um, many people aren't hospitalized for it and you know, just have maybe symptoms, chest pain, um, uh, for a couple of days. And so it tends to resolve pretty quickly in our athlete group. Again, this was one of the major questions we were concerned. And in fact, both PAC 12 and the big 10 shut down for a period of time because of concern about a number of different things. But, but one of the things was myocarditis in athletes. Um, we had somewhere between 0.5% and 3% of athletes get myocarditis from actual COVID. And it depends a little bit how technical you want to get about what you're calling myocarditis. Um, are you calling MRI changes without symptoms myocarditis? And, but, um, you know, you can say a solid estimate is 1% of athletes, young people that get myocarditis or that get COVID will get myocarditis. And so um, that's somewhere between, you know, around uh, one in a hundred, maybe one in 200 on the low side. And so uh, you're a lot less likely to get myocarditis uh, from the vaccine than you are from COVID itself. And so, you know, uh, if, if that's your major concern about the vaccine, you really should be more concerned about catching COVID. And it, what happens, you know, myocarditis is like we talked about is inflammation of the lining of the heart, right? It's actually the heart muscle itself. Okay. Pericarditis would be the lining of the heart. And then it's, there's also a difference between vaccine reactions on young men and young women. So young women are popping up with these blood clots from the exact opposite, from the J and J, which is a non mRNA vaccine. Am I right on that? Yeah, <laughs> did yeah, I get that right? Yeah, absolutely right. You know, uh, uh, most of the uh, vaccine-related myocarditis, about 70, 80% is in young men, not in young women. And then um, uh, the, the um, problems with blood clotting tends to be in women. Mm -hmm. And do we have any idea why? I don't think we do. <laughs> I, I mean, part of the tradition of maybe not so much more recently now that there's more women doctors and, and researchers and everything, but used to be that all the research was done on men. And so women were just treated like a mini man's body, right? Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean, I think that uh, when we start to think about risk, we have to um, really try to be more granular than just sort of general risk and look at the differences in risk between men and women and sort of look at the differences in race, race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that's even sometimes harder information to get because it's not collected all the time. And so um, yeah, just, just important to think about those things, not just generalize. But again, blood clots are a bigger threat if you have an actual COVID infection than if you, for them from the vaccine, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. We're seeing a lot of issues with blood clotting in people that get COVID. Are, are you seeing, I mean, this is completely an anecdotal story of a friend of mine who uh, before COVID was, we really knew it was here. He, he thinks perhaps he had a COVID infection in January of 2020. And then a, a little bit more than a year later, he had like life-threatening blood clots. And he, there could be other causes, you know, he's looking into it and everything, but I mean, the possibility, could that possibly be something like, you know, like later this happens to you, like a year later, you're, you, they finally got to the point where they're starting to bother you or. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, uh, I, I'm probably not in the best position to comment on that, but you know, blood clots happen. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons that you can get them. Certainly we do see problems with the blood thickening or blood clots during COVID sort of at what point that risk ends is, is unknown as far as I know. Um, uh, I, I, uh, but, but um, that hypercoagula hypercoagulability related to COVID is, is, is definitely a real issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that kind of um, brings me to uh, another, it used to be my babysitter for my children, but now she's a doctor and she's a pediatrician and she was working or she still is in Omaha, Nebraska at the hospital there. And at the beginning of the summer, she was talking about a lot of um, young children coming in who the family never even knew they had COVID. And now like four weeks later, so I guess they did an antibody test. So they knew that they had had COVID like four weeks later, these kids were coming in with this inflammatory response. And, um, it, actually it might've been the summer of 2020. She told me this, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, so it was before Delta, but then this idea that you could have a COVID infection, that's just kind of silently sitting there. You don't even know it. And then four months or four weeks or four months or a year later, something pops up from it. And we really don't know that yet. Right. Because it's so new still. Yeah, you know, in, in children um, who get multi-system inflammatory disease, which is sort of when their immune systems reacts to the code, it tends to be sort of after the, the main part of the infection has gone, gone away. Um, I don't think that um, worse, you know, uh, the people who get COVID and had no symptoms or had mild symptoms that resolved, you know, hopefully we're not going to be seeing a bunch of issues that sort of pop up and, and come and get them a year or two years uh, later. Um, certainly need to keep an eye out for that. I hope not because I uh, was, was unfortunate and got COVID early on in the, oh. in the whole <laughs> pandemic. And so um, uh, let, let's just say that that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, well, then I have to bring up this next thing. <laughs> uh, I have uh, another friend who's a researcher at the UAA College of Health, and she studies uh, viruses that cause cancer. And she told me at the beginning of the summer that they are very, very interested in COVID because it looks like a virus that could cause cancer. So they are starting to do a lot of research into that. Have you heard anything about that? I have not heard one word. You're just okay. giving, giving me an extra thing to worry about. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. So as, so after you've had a COVID infection, obviously, if you're really ill, you shouldn't be exercising when you're ill. What if you've tested positive for COVID? Can you, but you're not having any, um, symptoms, um, within the parameters of being quarantined, can you still exercise during that time or should you lay low? 
You know, that that's really changed over the course of the pandemic. When, when um, this whole thing first started, uh, we were recommending people not exercise for at least 14 days. And some people were going 21 days um, from the time that they had their initial symptoms or the time that they tested positive, even if they were asymptomatic and were, you know, telling, telling athletes not to exercise in their, their room. Uh, with the most recent guidelines from the American Medical Society of Sports Medicine, we'll see some more coming out from the um, American College of Cardiology soon. Um, the recommendation is if you're asymptomatic, avoid exercise for three days. And that three days is really kind of arbitrary um, um, and mostly kind of, well, you don't, if you test positive, you may not know whether you're developing symptoms or not. Um, and then uh, just to exercise as, you know, as, as tolerated. Um, and, and in general, you know, it's not a great idea for people to exercise when they're sick, right. um, um, whether that's COVID or from other things. We've always used sort of the, in, in sports, the sort of head up um, or, or, or neck down sort of rule. And so if you just, you know, have um, upper respiratory symptoms, your head stuffy, you've got a cold, probably okay to exercise. If you're achy, if you've got a fever, um, having difficulty breathing, then it's probably, um, then you shouldn't really be exercising. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that, um, again, has been hit home to me as a sports medicine doctor for the last 30 years since I was doing my training. Um, so, you know, um, if you're achy, that means the virus, whether it's COVID or anything else is in your muscles and it's affecting your muscles and your heart's a muscle. And uh, so, so we don't want to make things worse by exercising. And mm -hmm. So giving yourself sort of a, a break from that exercise routine and get, uh, your body a chance to sort of overcome it and then getting back to your exercises probably the smarter thing. So let's say you have a, a COVID infection that has some, what you feel like might be the worst symptoms of ever any illness you've ever had, but you, you're not hospitalized or anything. So you're pretty ill for, you know, you know, four, six weeks. Um, I mean, the experience I'm having on the ground is that people are coming back with that shortness of breath, um, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, but are there other ways um, that you like, what should you look for during that time you're returning to exercise and how should you modify your exercise? Yeah. So what we're recommending right now is, is if you have sort of mild or moderate illnesses that, um, you know, you have a gradual sort of re return to exercise. If you do get chest pain and it seems to be <clears throat> chest pain seems to be more predictive than anything else, you probably need to go see your doctor and, and get, get worked up um, as you're coming back to exercise. If you're severely ill, then before you go back to exercise, you should have a medical evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think really um, it's something that exercising people or um, athletes are usually not very good at, which is sort of listening to their body, um, you know, because pain is just, you know, weakness leaving your body. Um, right. But <laughs> in, in, the, in the case of um, coming back to exercise after an illness like covid you, you need to really sort of tune in and, um, and listen to your body. And, mm -hmm. and if you're having issues, then that's the time to uh, maybe uh, check in with your doctor and seek some medical evaluation. Now, what about finally people who have been hospitalized due to COVID? I remember really early on in the pandemic, there was 
a young man from somewhere in the Midwest who was hospitalized. And I think he was even on a ventilator at one point and intubated. And um, he ended up like setting his sights on an Ironman after he got out of the hospital within that, like six months after he'd gotten out of the hospital, you know, um, what is kind of, if you've been very, very ill and hospitalized, what should you be looking for as you, you start to return to extra? I don't, I personally don't think an Ironman is a good thing to set your sights on that, that same year you come out of the hospital, but you know, particularly maybe if you've never done one before, that's, but, um, you know, I think if people have been hospitalized, they need to uh, check in with their medical providers about how to return to exercise and what's safe. And there's so many different things that can happen to you um, when you're hospitalized, particularly if you've been intubated in terms of, um, you know, heart issues and lung issues, and you do need some sort of medical evaluation before you just get out there and start running and trying to push through it. You know, uh, you know, initially we think that, that, getting, you know, a blood test to potentially look for heart inflammation would be a good idea. Getting an EKG to look for heart issues and even an echocardiogram at somebody who has been severely ill. Um, and, and then depending on how that goes and, and how things go as you return to exercise, even getting more um, um, additional evaluation like cardiac MRI or exercise stress tests or, or things like that. And so that's really something that you need to do in partnership with your medical provider. Again, just anecdotally, what I've been hearing from athletes um, is that, you know, they have this shortness of breath, like we talked about, of course. And the other thing is like, they just, once they pop their heart rate up, even into that kind of tempo effort, somewhat hard effort, everything just goes crazy and they just have to bring it back down so that the really low level aerobic activity um, if they're patient, that's what they're best at sticking with and not kind of driving their body into this fatigue state because they've popped their heart rate up too soon. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, again, in COVID exercise appears for people who are fit, um, and exercise appears to be somewhat protective. And so sort of getting back to that is reasonable, but I think it just highlights the importance of sort of listening to your body. And if you do get um, chest pain or if you have significant shortness of breath um, as you ramp up, then, then to look into it a little further. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it really is that whole thing where we listen to our body when we're, cause it makes us feel good to do this exercise. But then when it gets to this point, we just don't want to listen to it. We want to keep exercising and you know, <laughs> nobody likes limitations, right? Exactly. And, and everybody, you know, people are, are impatient in general. I totally agree with that. And that's definitely what I'm seeing. It's just like a time to kind of like be patient about it. It's just a different world right now and take your time. That's right. Yep. Uh, well, Kim, thanks so much for being with me today. Um, this was really great information. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This is Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. In the final segment of today's show, I'll be talking with Elisa Carroll a physical therapist with progressive physical therapy who has been treating post-COVID breathing issues. So um, first of all, why don't you just tell me a little bit what about what you're seeing in the clinic right now with people who've had COVID and um, what the issues they're dealing with post-COVID? Um, well, I guess I would start with um, 
the thought that like you assume that most of your patients have a basic knowledge of anatomy of their lungs and their diaphragm and their rib cage, or that people would just have like a universal awareness of the importance of breathing. But we're finding that nothing could be further from the truth, that people really just don't make that connection. And then they maybe start to try to exercise and they're just feeling really out of breath or that their chest feels really tight or that they just can't get enough air in. And we're just trying to screen everybody now who's had COVID in the past because they could be walking around with like inflammation of their heart that they have no idea. They maybe had a really mild case of COVID and they didn't know that that was even a side effect they could be having. And so it's just important to screen everybody really well, mm -hmm. um, whether they had a strong case or were in the hospital and, and then treat all the other symptoms like, you know, their thoracic spine is really stiff and maybe they've become upper chest breathers because they have been, quarantine for a long time and they haven't been exercising. And so now they're using like accessory muscles in their neck to breathe more than really using their diaphragm. And a lot of people don't even know where their diaphragm is or how to, you know, use it properly to take optimal breaths throughout the day. So this is kind of a problem that was before COVID, like people didn't understand how to breathe. And I think this is something that yoga really works with, right? How to oh, breathe. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Pranayama, that's like thousands of years old, trying to get people to use a lot of different, you know, free and wonderful breathing techniques and exercises to just, you know, increase the strength of your intercostal muscles or to decrease stress or um, lots and lots of great ways to use pranayama and yoga breathing. Is this kind of a Western thing? Um, like, like people in the West have just kind of like have a much more sedentary lifestyle anyway. So they haven't really been stressed to have to breathe. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, even some athletes don't, you know, who breathe really hard all the time, don't, don't know some like real basic things. And mm -hmm. it's, and I don't even know all the things I just happen to nerd out on this stuff a lot. And, and I'm really into breathing exercises. And it, then it, we just happen to have a pandemic of people who have had their lungs heavily affected and their hearts as well. And my job is to integrate people into exercising safely, especially after being sick. So it's kind so, of a good time. Um, so why don't you explain where the diaphragm is and what it, it, what its role is in breathing? Well, the diaphragm sort of, I think about your abdominal cavity is like an egg and the top of the egg right underneath your rib cage um, is your diaphragm muscle. And if you, then you have your abdominals, you know, around the circumference of your egg and then your pelvic floor muscles on the bottom of your egg. And, you know, as air goes in, your diaphragm flattens and your chest expands and your pelvic floor goes down. And then when you exhale, your diaphragm domes up inside your rib cage, your pelvic floor lifts up and your cylinder or your egg gets really skinny and you blow all that air out and you feel your abdominals get tight. Mm -hmm. So just doing a breathing exercise like that can make you feel like you're exercising mm -hmm. um, without exercising, but you're just 
taking those muscles through that range of motion. Do we know yet? Is there like also, we know about the lung problems and that the heart inflammation, myocarditis, um, that can happen from COVID. Are there other breathing muscles that we think might be affected? Like, is there inflammation in the diaphragm? Is there inflammation in other places that would also affect how people are breathing or is it just too soon to even know this? Well, I mean, uh, one, some muscles that we really pay attention to are your intercostal muscles and, um, how your ribs and your intercostal muscles insert into your thoracic spine. All those things can come be, become very, very stiff and just teaching people gentle stretches or ways to just loosen up your ribs and how they interact with your thoracic spine and your collarbones and your shoulders and your neck and how to breathe more through your lower ribs and your belly instead of your upper chest and your neck and your upper traps. So when you have somebody come in who's had COVID, are they usually referred to you because they're still having issues post COVID? Some people have been referred, you know, or their 30 year old male who's still on supplemental oxygen. But, um, you know, a lot of people we see are just normal people who have shoulder or back pain or neck pain, but then they also happen to have had COVID. They're not referred for COVID related mm -hmm. issues, but they've had COVID and they're trying to get back to running or biking or skiing. And, and so it's good to just catch those people and screen them because maybe they haven't been to their doctor in two years, but they, they came to a medical appointment because their hip hurt and they can't bike or run or ski anymore because of that pain. And then you, you question them further and, oh yeah, I, I had COVID three months ago, or yeah, I still have some lingering balance issues or trouble getting deep breaths. And then you can kind of go further. Is that kind of the most common thing that you're seeing post COVID is just having a hard time. Like once they start to work out harder, do something more physical that they're having a hard time breathing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, one thing I've heard, uh, t talking to people, I mean, that's the main thing I've heard of people post COVID, even with mild cases, like mm -hmm. once their heart rate gets even a little bit up that they're just like, kind of like, Whoa, this is so hard to do something that used to be so easy to do. And yeah. now it's so hard. Right. Yeah. We've had patients that are still on steroid inhalers or things like that. And so sometimes if we can loosen up the whole system that does the breathing and loosen up their rib cage and their thoracic spine and get them breathing properly, thinking about their diaphragm and where to expand and take their breath, um, you can get great results for anybody who's just trying to get off the couch or, you know, go from sit to stand without getting out of breath, or if they're trying to return to a running program. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what kind of, uh, can you explain some of the physical therapy that you would do like your breathing exercises, like where you, would you start with somebody or would you, would you have somebody come in and say, Oh gosh, my neck is really sore. I don't know why my neck is so sore. And I had this COVID infection a couple months ago. And then you're like, ah, maybe they're like breathing just yeah. at the top of their lungs. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean there, so we do different things. I mean, um, we, 
you can do manual therapy, which is great to just, you know, get your fingers and all the nooks and crannies in between the ribs and kind of loosen things up. And you can use little you tap, you know, on different parts of their chest wall and in their back and in the sides of their ribs and say, okay, breathe here, breathe here. You can use counting exercises. Um, sometimes we have people start with um, saying, you know, one through 10 over and over and over until they are fully out of air. Every last drop of air has left their body. And then they're just mouthing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, until every last molecule of air is out and their abdominals are super tight around their spine. And they feel that, okay, their diaphragm is domed up inside their rib cage. And then they're ready to take in air and flatten their diaphragm back out, open their intercostal spaces back up and do it all over again. But people who are like upper chest breathers, I, a lot of times I get them to sit with their knees up to their chest and hug their knees. And then I put my hands on their, you know, low back and their low ribs. And I ask them to breathe into my hands back there. And that is a good awareness to that they can't lift their chest up to breathe, that they have to just stay in a flex position, just trying to get the muscles and their shoulder blades to lift up and expand the rib cage in the back. It, is it kind of like for some people like this, even athletes, this like aha moment, like, oh boy, you know, if COVID hadn't come along, I wouldn't have known that I wasn't able to get those good breaths. And I really wasn't doing what I could to, to maximize my potential. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think this is kind of like, um, one of those new fads, right? Like optimal breathing, you know, people are finally seeing the science behind it and using it with, um, you know, college sports and I mean, singers and dancers and those, a lot of the people in the arts, especially anybody who's been using their diaphragm for singing, they know all about this or people who play the saxophone or, you know, they know all these little tricks, but now science is like figuring out why it works. And then people are glomming onto it and using it for their, you know, sports and trying to get the advantage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can, you can get a big advantage by just breathing less and uh, exhaling more, breathing through your nose instead of being mouth breathers. A lot of people are, um, the science is finding that breathing through your nose is much healthier than breathing through your mouth. And a lot of people didn't even know they were a mouth breather until you bring this question up. Mm -hmm. But respiratory therapists in the hospital, they're just dealing with, you know, lung volumes and ventilators and tubes and blood gases. And they're not really teaching people about the muscles used to breathe. And if somebody was in the ICU and they were in a prolonged position, either on their stomach with their head turned to the side, I mean, they're going to come out of that experience with a lot of stiffness in their back and neck and being uh, doing lots of repetitions of shallow chest breathing. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense at this point in the pandemic of um, kind of a general idea of how long it takes some people to relearn breathing after a COVID infection and kind of recover from it? Or are you just, it's way too early to see that? <laughs> you well, have any, I do don't have, think have you had anybody who's like, they're back to their normal self now after they got a little bit of help figuring it out. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I, our patients report being back to themselves once, I mean, a lot of times it doesn't take much. I mean, once somebody 
invites you to try some of these things and it clicks in your body and you realize how much better you feel. I mean, everybody feels better when they're getting deep, well-ventilated breaths into their body, especially if they're trying to exercise. Mm-hmm. So if they use those little techniques, then, I mean, it's like riding a bike. You just use them because they work. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so people shouldn't, if, if people are post COVID and they are still experiencing a lot of problems, they, they really shouldn't wait. They, they probably need some help to relearn breathing, relearn, you know, a lot of things, especially obviously if they've been in the hospital and in critical care, it takes a while to come back from that. So oh, is definitely. that kind of message they should get on some physical therapy to help them relearn some of this, these things. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we love teaching people how to relearn these things, but I mean, also everybody's walking around with their heart rate and blood pressure and all these apps on their watches and they should be paying attention to what response does my heart have when I exercise? Does my heart rate go up and then go down appropriately? And my respiration rate, all those things, you know, they should check in and, or if they exercise and their heart rate doesn't come down for 10, 15 minutes, you know, something's going on there that they might need to go check in with their doctor about, or, you know, the good old, just put your hand on your carotid artery and take your pulse and see, I mean, do old school, but just like, if you're recovering from this big, bad illness, you should just be on top of it and uh, paying attention to your vital signs. It it always goes back to paying attention to your body, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, Lisa, thanks for joining me today. This was really um, informational. I really appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, thank you. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my guests, Aaron Ramirez, Dr. Kim Harmon, and physical therapist, Elisa Carroll. You can find pictures and links to Dr. Harmon's research and guidelines for return to sport and a link to progressive physical therapy on alaskapublic.org. The show is produced by Eric Bork. My name is Lisa Keller, and from all of our hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thanks for listening, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.